the attempt by uh, the um, farthest right wing of the Republican leadership to utilize um, things like uh, critical race theory to silence uh, the misunderstanding, the purposeful, willful misrepresentation of critical race theory to uh, attempt to silence, find a way to get to a point where you can silence teachers both at the in the public schools as well as the colleges and the universities. So, you know, Governor Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Patrick are uh, in Texas are are both really working, trying to find a way to end tenure uh, and all that. And, th and that gets added on to, um, you know, you can't go after black folk. That's that's not done directly. Right. But you can go after trans people. And if you go after them the right way, you can create a situation in which a lot of those laws get replaced back over onto the people you can't actually go after anymore. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that like Dan, uh, Governor Abbott uh, advised the uh, Texas Department of Child Protective Services uh, that, uh, you know, that as far as the way he interprets the law in Texas, anyone who is uh, helping their child with uh, transition therapy, even if it's just, you know, uh, superficial, like, you know, the, uh, a, young, a young girl begins dressing as a girl rather than the boy that she was assigned at birth. And they, uh, they say that's child abuse. And then they they want you to turn in your neighbor. So everything they're doing is so reminiscent of <clears throat> Jim Crow plus the Stasi. It's like, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going yeah. to let you turn in abortion providers and people who get abortions. We're going to let you turn in trans, uh, the parents of trans kids for child abuse. We're going to let, you know, we're going to let you become the ones who do all of these things. It's not the state. Right. And you know, so you just turn in your neighbors, narc on all your neighbors. That's, that's the situation we live in now. And then if you can grab control of the school districts and grab control of the university regents uh, and, you know, really push through these things that silence teaching uh, actual facts, uh, and also silence teaching ways that we can struggle together to change the world. Uh, you know, they, they win a whole lot that way. And I think the other, the last thing I want to say about that, I think the other thing they're trying to do is, is that they're literally trying to create a situation in Texas where anybody who is, uh, anybody who is, uh, you know, just even centrist, will realize they have no business living here and they'll just pick up and leave. They want to destroy the public education system so they can totally privatize it. And then they also want to, you know, take complete control of the university system so that the only people who really will be welcome there are going to end up being people that are mostly bigots and hateful, horrible, hateful people. There's a dystopic consistency that I've noted too, and what you were just talking about. So this idea in Texas that you would, um, so this anti-trans bill, yeah, you know, just happened, and then there, of course, the Texas abortion bill, and the way that the state 
government has handled coming out of Austin, not in cities, state government yeah. has handled COVID. Yep. This idea that it's it's an individual, it falls to these individuals. So it's always this rhetoric about responsibility of the individual. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, first of all, it's ludicrous on the face of it that it's not the state behind this abortion bill or it's not the state behind <laughs> this trans bill or right. that it's not the state behind the dereliction of duty for public health. Right. But in that in that shell game is something important. This idea that you, you of course, the state may deepens its power. Right. But it uses a discourse of retreat from power. So all of this is happening because it's supposedly authentic and grows authentically from the responsibilities of the individual. And right. I wonder what you think about that, because I do think it's totally, it's, it's ludicrous, but it's consistent madness. It's, uh, you know, insofar as, yeah, I agree with you. I think actually what's going on with, um, oh, I can't, I never can remember the name of the French thinker who, he wrote an article about neoliberalism like 30 years ago or 25 years ago. I'll probably think of it here in a little while. And, but his basic argument was that the real thrust of neoliberalism or, uh, uh, is, uh, managerialism is another way, excuse me, another way that the French talk about it. So the real issue of neoliberalism and managerialism is that its whole purpose is to break up union and union here has to be understood the broadest terms, right? First, it's actual what we'd call trade unions. Then it's public unions. Then it's literally families. If you really stop and look at what happens with managerialism or neoliberalism, it has it has eaten away at the its hyper individualism, uh, which is necessary for hyper alienation, has eaten away at the fabric of all the things. So it's not just that they're saying. Uh, you know, we care about individual liberty, uh, and then they, you know, they're 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 sort of making and uh, saying the opposite of what they really believe. It's not just that; it's that they also say they care about the family. But they they everything they do eats away at the fabric of family, right? And because they think the only way that you can have family, I guess they'll think they believe the only way you can have family is to have one adult who's the man. And then everybody else is just a bunch of children, including the wife and the mother. Right. And so, you know, so it, it all goes their Their idea of family is so phony. Uh, it's, it's just it's this it's, it's so much uh, uh, what a lot of people would refer to it as bad faith uh, and um, manipulation of rhetoric and even sophistry. When I was a kid growing up in Arlington, Texas, um, you know, the churches were and are grand. And, I, and I'm not going to criticize faith here. What I'm going to invoke is a pretty common story, I think, in Texas and does maybe not just in Texas, other places, but um, mm. majestic church beautiful, one of the most beautiful buildings in town. Yeah. Um, uh, sports facilities, many things that would be public, the library. Yeah. Many of those things brought into the church. And the pastor, who's very 
who was excellent at holding the room, right, up there every week talking about the talking about Jesus and talking about the Gospels and talking about the dignity of poverty and uh, and he's wearing a thousand dollar suit and he has the most expensive car in the in the parking lot. Yeah. Now I, I I tell it this way because I was you know. 14 years old, and it was obvious to me that there's something didn't add up there, right? Right. <laughs> um, and and I think it's that that lack of authenticity that we grew up with and came to understand that this man and this community had built a system where it was okay mm-hmm. to say one thing and do another. And that's just the way it yeah. was. That's, yeah. And it completely, and look, that's not original, you know, Max Weber, it's not original to me to point out that the spirit of capitalism lives at the heart of Christianity, but to see it on a daily or weekly basis right. in such an obvious way and grow up with that. Yeah. And to see that become sort of just instantiated now in American politics in such a, in such a brutal way. Yeah. And so... I mean, do I think that these politicians in Texas hate trans kids? I don't know, but I doubt they thought much about it before this year. I think that they um, love being in power, and I think they love the mm-hmm. financial resources that come with that. And I guess that's just my little speech. And I, but I, you know, you know, I've talked about religion in Texas and in authenticity, you know, in authenticity for a long time. Do we just have to accept it? I mean, it's just part of what democracy in America is about. I'll make an existential distinction so that uh, or a, an existentialist distinction uh, that I think is really helpful in this regard. Uh, authenticity is uh, is not the same thing as genuineness. Authenticity is actually um, insofar as you or I have anything that is singularly m- myself, that's my authenticity. Nobody else has it, <clears throat> right? And from my authenticity, I struggle to speak with you. And oddly enough, I have to use genuine inauthenticity to share with you my authenticity. So there's so there's there's that issue. Right. So the big problem that you have and Heidegger pointed this out. I mean, you know, I think it's not a bad idea, maybe to use someone who accidentally fell into the Nazi party to talk about these quasi fascists that are in charge of our state. And uh And one of the things he said was inauthenticity actually is a part of the constitution of the way that we do things. It's like, it's how we make the world. It's how we share and and talk with each other. The thing that's difficult to break free of is not inauthenticity because we fall in and out of that all the time. It's false authenticity. And what you're dealing with, with a lot of these Christians is false authenticity. It's what Heraclitus would have called uh, the people who uh, think that they've heard the logos or heard the divine order and they can actually explain what it is. That's, that's a, that's a group of people that Heraclitus from Heraclitus to Heidegger that, uh, that, that have always found condemnation among philosophers because really what it is, is just, it's just a bunch of bad faith, false, uh, false righteousness. And I think that's what we usually are resonating to especially those of us that grew up in the church or grew up around Texas, you know, being in the buckle of the Bible belt, you know, we kind of like saw that the two spacedness of it. 
So this I think is, that's a really uh, important thing to, to kind of point out there. And then how do you react to that? This is where Socrates and Buddha and Jesus would do the same thing. Once they realize that someone is just lost in the sauce of false authenticity, they generally would just scoop around them. Mm. You can't directly deal with those people. I think you can deal with structures that empower those people. And you maybe you can figure out a way to 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 make those structures less pot. But this is, of course, is something they've been able to also manipulate. They've used the pandemic to their benefit right. to 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 really consolidate uh, power uh, in a way uh, and uh, and really play off the fears of people. <clears throat> and and the false indignation or the uh, self-righteous indignation of a lot of people. I think that's um, that point, you know, you know, where has the Southern Baptist conference been on the pandemic you know? and the willingness to tolerate or in some people should know. I mean, you know, if you're not familiar with Christianity in America, it's a, it's a startup fest. I mean, there's so many churches and, yeah, you know, and so many denominations and people do when they get tired of community they're in, it's not working, they move on to the next one. But some of them are big and powerful. And when they have retreated, yeah. when the, just like we were talking about before, the power of the state supposedly devolves to some other entities. And one of the places it devolves is the Southern, is the Baptist leadership. And, you know. And there's a, there are consequences to that for queer folk. You know, there are consequences to that for black folk. There are consequences to that for women, uh, and definitely for, for trans folk, but for, for queer and trans folk, for quilt bag folk, uh, the fact that the majority of nursing homes uh, in the state are run by Christian organizations who use no religious test for, to take you in so long as you have money or something they can take, right, until they find out that you're queer, and then they're like, oh, our religious values will not allow us to, to, to take in a person who, who's like that. And we have a right because of our religious values to deny that person a place to be. So around the country, this isn't just in Texas, around the country, the majority of nursing homes and retirement hospitals and things are run by faith organizations. And anytime, uh, and they conveniently give a fuck about faith as soon as it's something like gay people uh and and trans people that might actually end up living somewhere uh and that's a problem because you know what more than 80 percent of every one of those uh those places more than 80 percent of their funding comes from the federal government because it comes through medicare and social security and medicaid so the majority of the money they get comes from the federal government but somehow they believe they have, a, you know, they, their, their religion can come into play. I mean, that's problematic, <clears throat> but this is the issue, right? And Paulo Freire would say, this is also the problem with charity and humanitarianism in the first place. When it's controlled by oppressors, when it's controlled by people who tend to dehumanize anybody who disagrees with them, uh, then what they're really doing is they're using charity and welfare and humanitarianism to control the people that they want to, to keep a, their keep under their thumb. And, and that's really kind of what you see, you know? <clears throat> so 
We got started, uh, for those just joining, this is COVID Calls, and in fact, what I'm going to do now is what I should have done at the top. Uh, we got started with a conversation backstage, and it was so good, I just took it live, and uh, Bucky Stanton, who sound edits these, is going to kill me for this, because uh, this is going <laughs> to throw him off his game. Keith, I'm going to um, okay. just keep you there, if you don't mind, and I'm just going to do some of the preliminary things, and then we'll rejoin sure. our conversation in just a second. Okay. I want to welcome everybody to the 432nd of the COVID Calls, which is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, and I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea, and I'm welcoming back for the second day in a row philosopher, teacher, and my dear friend Keith Maggie Brown, and we've been continuing our conversation about philosophy and COVID, I just want to remind everyone you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel, and you can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. I want to turn to some of the numbers from the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In total, since the beginning of the pandemic in Ukraine, there have been 5,012,980 cases of COVID. 112,173 people have lost their lives to COVID-19 over the course of the pandemic. In the past month, there have been 6,302 new deaths. That's down from the worst of the pandemic thus far, which was in November of 2021, in which 19,195 people lost their lives to COVID. That was in Ukraine in November 2021. In the past week, there have been 1,746 new deaths and 194,868 new cases, and 311 people have died just in the last day from COVID-19 in Ukraine. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline, Nation Builder Yevhen Marchuk Dies at Age 80 Due to COVID-19 Complications. This was written by Mark Rakowicz and appeared August 13th, 2021 in the Ukrainian Weekly. Dateline Kiev prominent statesman who helped shape Ukraine's nationhood during much of its formative years after renewed independence in 1991, died in August. Yevhen Marchuk, 80, died on August 5th from complications of COVID-19. He was buried in Kiev's Bekov Cemetery two days later. The coronavirus disease exacerbated the diseases he suffered from and provoked acute pulmonary heart failure, said a statement by the Security Service of Ukraine, SBU which he had founded in 1991 and initially led. The SBU succeeded the Soviet-era KGB. President Volodymyr Zelensky acknowledged his service to the country on social media. Mr. Zelensky lauded Mr. Marchuk's efforts during retirement to find peace in the Russia-instigated war in eastern Ukraine and secure the release of illegally detained Ukrainians as the former head of the country's delegation to the Trilateral Contact Group in Minsk. Mr. Marchuk devoted his entire life to protecting the national interests of Ukraine, the president tweeted. Thanks in part to his efforts, the TKG in Donbas has established a regime of silence that persists to this day. His experience is invaluable. Some 14,000 people 
have been killed in the war, again, this is coming from August of 2021, they've been killed in the war since Russia first forcibly seized Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula in 2014. Born in Odessa, Oblast, in which is today is the Kirovorad region, he completed his training as a language teacher in 1963. Having credentials as an instructor of the Ukrainian and German languages, Mr. Marchuk joined the KGB spy agency and worked in foreign intelligence. He would eventually head the Ukrainian unit of the KGB's fifth department that dealt with dissidents, Soviet Ukrainian dissidents like the late Levko Lukyanenko and Irina Kelinets had credited him for being a decent person and for being one of the few KGB officers who spoke Ukrainian to detainees. My longtime dissident friends were Marchuk's close friends and often credited him for protecting many that Moscow sought to destroy, said James Scher, a Briton who's a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute. He evolved into a true Euro-Atlantic visionary long before it was fashionable in Ukraine, he said. By the time of Ukraine's renewed independence, following a referendum vote in 1991, Mr. Marchuk had the rank of first deputy head of the USSR's KGB. In 1994, then-President Leonid Kuchma appointed him to the position of general in the armed forces. The former general also ran unsuccessfully for president numerous times and was once seen as a promising candidate in the disputed 1999 presidential election. About 8% of the electorate voted for him that year when he finished in fifth place in the first round. The victor, Mr. Kuchma, would appoint him as defense minister in 2003. And the succeeding president, Viktor Yushchenko, appointed him as a non-staff advisor in 2008. Foreign and local analysts of Ukraine and former diplomats to the country also commented on the passing of Mr. Marchuk, whose positions included serving as prime minister and the head of the National Security and Defense Council, commenting to the Washington-based think tank Atlantic Council. Former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, John Herbst, said that he remembers the deceased as a serious, dignified man and good colleague. He recognized the importance of strong relations between Washington and Kyiv. Mr. Herbst, who's the current director of the Analytical Center's Eurasia Center, added that Marchuk was more than a former defense minister during the time when Herbst represented the United States in Kyiv. During his career, he also served as head of the SBU, Prime Minister, First Deputy Prime Minister. In other words, he was among the small group of senior officials steadying Ukraine as it navigated its first years of independence, Mr. Herbst said. Scher added that he remembers the former KGB officer as a perceptive, strong, and far-sighted man, sturdy in his judgment, steep and practical in his knowledge, and in no way short of courage. As a statesman, Mr. Marchuk pushed for Ukraine's integration with the United States and European institutions and away from Russia's grasp. He ranks among the most important pioneers of Ukraine's Euro-Atlantic discourse, said Danilo Lubkivsky, director of the Kyiv Security Forum. He was at the heart of efforts to bring Ukraine back to a united Europe, join the Council of Europe, and achieve the goal of NATO membership. Regarding the nation builder's achievements, member of parliament Lisa Yasko of the Servant of the People Party said hardly anybody could surpass him. Arguably, no other politician in modern Ukrainian history has such a distinguished record, she said. Mr. Marchuk is survived by his wife, Irina Ivshina, chief editor of The Day newspaper based in Kiev, and his two sons, Taras and Vadim. Obituary of Yevhen Marchuk, who died at age 80 in August 2021 of COVID-related complications.
Okay, I want to rejoin my conversation now with Keith Maggie Brown. And Keith, um, thank you for holding on while I did those preliminaries, which I should have sure. done at the top. But um, we talked about a lot of different topics yesterday. And um, on my list also was authoritarianism and Texan COVID freedom. We got into that at the top here without even really intending to. But I wanted what I really wanted to start with today, so let's circle back, was about your your dissertation project and your writing research you're doing right now, the project is titled Untying the Knots that Bind, Existential Elucidation and the Transgressive Life. What's this project about? Well, you know, as I said yesterday, I was, uh, uh, I'm very influenced by the work of Carl Jaspers, who was uh, the teacher of my mentor, Richard Owsley. And so basically the project is, it's a little strange probably for most philosophy dissertations, uh, at least in our department, since the University of North Texas is more famous for environmental ethics and environmental philosophy. Uh, but basically what I do is I use the, I use the symbolism of the tarot to help me queer the existential, uh, existential techniques of Carl Jaspers to free up, um, uh, to, to kind of utilize those techniques to uh, free up thinking so that I can get more to the uh, I can get more to the actual pattern of of being in the world uh, more directly. And I know that all probably sounds a little weird. So let me that's an important part of it is it's it's to weird things. So the idea here is, is that. <clears throat> Things like tarot provide us uh, with symbolic structures that we can interact with. And those symbolic structures actually can uh, be utilized to help us explore the places in our lives where we've been tied down uh, by our uh, presuppositions that we just inherited from other people by prejudices that we didn't even know we developed over the course of our life, things like that. Uh, and then uh, in this sort of exploration of uh, what Jaspers calls existential elucidation, when you turn those techniques uh, toward these, these, uh, these knots that bind, uh, then you have the ability you know, <laughs> to unknot them. And the way you unknot them is to, and it's, it's kind of a, a sort of deconstruction. So what I do is querying for me is deconstruction. And, uh, and so you go, so if you actually, it's one of those almost Derrida kind of words, right? Untying the knots that bind. If you see the title, the K is in parentheses. So it's not just the, right? So it's untying the knots, which would be sort of the way that our, uh, with a K, the way that our, our, that we've been tied up by presuppositions, uh, that we've inherited from the world and then untying the knots, the, with an N, right. Uh, is, is actually, uh, the, uh, the ways that, that, that we have, uh, developed in ourselves to avoid, uh, dealing with uh, difficult things, 
right? So uh, it's very important for me in this notion of utilizing the, the ideas of querying to uh, to really get to the heart of how to become someone that expresses an open self-awareness for uh, what Jaspers calls loving struggle. And, uh, and then the weirding aspect of it, weirding professional philosophy, weird is, a, is actually a weird word. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, uh, but uh, when we were in great books together and we read Beowulf, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the word for fate in Beowulf is weird because that's actually the Anglo, Anglo-Nordic word for fate, Urdra. Is uh, is this word or udre, and uh, and so and weird actually then means the way things are or the way things are supposed to be. Hmm. So it's a kind of an interesting thing. Like if 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 we the idea here would be if I can untie these different kinds of knots, both the ones that we would think of as knots, and then these uh, kind of self imperatives to to avoid thinking about certain things, if we can untie those, we actually see the weird fabric of the world. We can actually be in the world with that in that pattern as something that we actually have an effect on and that we can explore and, and we can. And to do that, what I've ended up, what I've ended up doing is uh, the project's gone through a number of phases. And I finally realized that until I deconstruct myself, I can't do anything. So this project actually has ended up being over the last two years, me writing a deconstruction of Keith Brown to reveal Maggie Malady. And so that's basically what the, the project is, is just achieving liberation for myself so I can teach other people how to do it. That probably would have been the easier way to say what it's about. Just saying that little line right there. <laughs> yeah, but it, we had to travel a little bit to come back to where we started, though. That's yeah, fine. Yeah. That deconstruction process. What I what I really appreciate with what you're describing is that it's a so it's a set of philosophical practices, but it's also it's it's you're not somehow segregating that from your your own place in the in the work. No. In fact, how did you come to that? Was that itself a sort of a struggle to get to the point where you could be first person? I hate writing. And uh, you like, you know, you've told me I'm a good writer, but I don't like to write. And everybody who reads my, my writing is like, you're a good writer. And I was like, I, but I don't like to write this stuff. And it's because mostly I'm a nonlinear thinker. So writing is with the exception of, you know, maybe doing something like William S. Burroughs did. Writing is primarily a very linear sort of thing. And um, what ended up happening is, you know, I, I, uh, because, you know, I had friends like you that helped me get into a Ph.D. program. I found myself in an, in, <laughs> in an American master's and Ph.D. program, which meant, uh, you know, unlike a European one, I had all these classes I had to take. So and mostly I knew all the shit I was doing, but I. Right. So it's like that part wasn't hard. The hard part was every semester I had to write, I had to write something. And so I finally reached a point where I wrote an R, I wrote a paper for a critical theory course called I, AKA plagiarist. And my, 
my idea there was that as an existentialist, um, I find it highly ironic that in the academy, we're, we're never supposed to plagiarize. But what we mean by that is um, don't take from other people and not give them their due, right? Yet we never think, and I think the way you asked your question is, is perfect for this. We never think about the fact that we have to steal from our own lives to, to make what we write having meaning. Uh, but that has to be alienated and muted and set aside. Like that's not really there. Right. So I ended up writing this very, it's the most postmodern thing I've ever written because it has I like in almost every sentence, but it's not I it's, you know, I loves hiding. So also if you, if you, and so the whole point was I told the professors, uh, the professor Masad Ruja, Masood Ru, Raja, excuse me, Masood Raja, who's an awesome uh, person and thinker. Uh, I told him, when you read it, read it out loud. Because you've got to get the difficulty of the way it's, because it, if you read it out loud, all those eyes, not with I verbs, but with he, she, they verbs, begins to make you feel a little disoriented while you're reading it. And then from time to time, I'd throw in stuff from my journals that I'd written over the last 30 years. And, you know, just as a part of this is the reason why this is even matters to me. It's because of this thing over here. Right. Um, so that's 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 really it. It was like and so was it it wasn't difficult for me to switch over from the original project I was going to do to this more personalized project, because Adam Briggle, my dissertation director, is very supportive of this uh stuff i'm doing and he was he was like if that's what you want to do then let's just figure out how to let you deconstruct yourself for your dissertation it's in the history of modern philosophy is that is that divide prominent or is it actually you know somehow uh coming to i mean i think about you know the history of 20th century philosophy and, right. and we were talking about Camus yesterday and I mean, he was a thinker who was constantly deconstructing himself he would be analytical but I mean he's also in the story and then his own life yeah you know becomes so intertwined with and there's a sort of a a, a, a fame there that goes along with that too and the cultivation of an identity that goes yes. along with it. But I think that sort of that self-deconstruction itself as a mode of analysis is, is not foreign to the history of contemporary philosophy, is it? No, it's not. Uh, it's just it's not the sort of thing one does for dissertation. For dissertation. One doesn't <laughs> right. dissertate this way. But, you know, no that, that's not, you know, everyone knows actually that a dissertation can be almost anything if you, you know, about anything and so long as you've got people who are willing to work with you. So, uh, but yeah, it's it's not. But in American philosophy, of course, even with the amount of people that we have who are influenced by postmodernism and existential thought, uh, American philosophy is very stuffy. It's very masculinist. It's very white. And so therefore, there's always the possibility. And this actually happened at one point when I was pitching a lot of these ideas is that some people were like, this is going to embarrass the department. You're writing tarot cards. You know, and you're writing about and I'm like, well, you know, yeah, that's what I want to write about. 
was like, this is embarrassing. And it's like, well, yeah, do you think that I believe tarot cards tell the future? I'm, I'm, I'm looking at these as, as works of art that cause me to have a different relationship to myself sometimes, right? That allow me to have a different relationship to myself sometimes. It's not like I'm trying to say, okay, everybody needs to learn how to tell the future by reading tarot cards. Uh, but it's, you know, so you do kind of run across those kind of things, I think, you know, and to yeah, me, I, that's the patriarchalist white stuffiness of philosophy. You did the department a favor by forcing them to have that conversation. <laughs> but honestly, these conversations are so long overdue. I mean, in the historical profession, this goes on um, from time to time in which, you know, in which we just sort of have an honest chat with ourselves that we make mm -hmm. we make the archive through our source selection we're constantly you know winnowing the archive we're we are part of the story that we tell and um and there's still i think there's a greater acceptance of that but there's still um there's still this sort of like claim to professionalism that wants the analyst the historian, the analyst mm -hmm. to be at the controls, but not, you know, you don't, the controls are not connected with you. You're controlling. And yeah. there's a, there's a, there's a distinction there between the analyst and the topic and the subject. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a lie. It's yeah. A, and I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Right. It's like, I, I've read enough of that kind of stuff. And, and I don't think that's what I'll, I certainly don't think that's what my colleagues are doing most of the time, but it, you know, sometimes it's like, I just don't want to participate in it if I don't have to. And primarily I'm a Socratic. Uh, so, you know, I'd rather just sit around and talk to people. If they would let me just talk to them for seven hours straight and then give me a PhD, I think everybody would be a lot happier, but <laughs> That's not uh, that's not the way it works. We still have to do these little hurdles. Right? So, but but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's I, I just can't do that anymore. And I and when I one of the things that was happening in, in writing all of those those uh, essays I had to write to get my uh, coursework done is I began to realize I cannot write a paper if I don't put myself in it. I literally have to. And, and, and for a year or so, I thought I was just a complete narcissist, which you know, wouldn't be surprised to some people because I'm kind of a ham, but the, but then I realized as I was going through all of this, this last over the pandemic, I, that, uh, uh I'm not a narcissist, I'm autistic and I can't talk. So, I, you know, I actually went and got all these things looked at and I, so I, besides ADHD, I'm, I'm autistic and I have, uh, I, I autism means selfism. That's literally what the word means. So everything begins and comes back to me. And I don't see that that's the most existential thing that I can, you know, it's not that I, it's about me. It's, uh, it's that it's, uh, if, if you can, if you can listen and go along with me a little bit, deconstructing myself, it'll have suggestions for how you can do it. I'm not doing it just to let you, you know, have some, you just let people have some kind of weird, um, voyeurism into my into my life or because i'm a narcissist and think that my life is the example for everybody uh but yeah so that's a let me just remind folks real quick you're listening to COVID calls i'm talking to keith maggie brown today and um 
I'm glad you're doing that project, and I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it. And I, uh, I you used a, a phrase there, which I've heard you use before, the loving struggle. Mm. And it's been on my mind with COVID, and um, we did, in 2017, we did an Anthropocene campus in Philadelphia at Drexel University. It was one of the most exciting things I ever got to participate in while I was my in my 20 years at Drexel University. And it's um, for those not familiar, the Anthropocene campus was uh, grows out of um, work that started at the Max Planck Institute in the House of World Culture in Berlin. And um, these are convenings in which people of all different disciplines get together and try to learn about the Anthropocene, this period of time that's proposed in which humans are the dominant shaping geological force on the planet. I've talked with a lot of guests about the Anthropocene on COVID calls because the world that the Anthropocene is making mm -hmm. reorders the relationship among species and zoonotic spillover is part of that. And so, so that's kind of background. And you were one of the, um, you had some interesting roles at that Anthropocene campus, one of which is you were the philosopher in residence. And so, I still have this image of people walking through hallway. You kind of set yourself up in the corner and you would sort of say, hey, come, just come for one second, just come a second. And, and then a, a, an hour later, I'd walk by and that person would still be there with you. And you were having dialogue about the Anthropocene, the philosophical dialogue. And then you gave a, a talk as part of it as well. And you talked about this concept of the loving struggle. And I want you to talk about it now, if you would. Yeah, loving struggle is important, I think. <clears throat> to start with uh, a couple of, of things to, to really get that laid out. And the first is uh, Americans, at least, uh, or the United States has become a culture that's very immersed in, it's very immersed in, in war. It's very immersed in violent struggle, uh, you know, and, and there's violence at every level of it, of it, of that society of society. And I kind of think that for most Americans, the notion of struggle is a war. And so therefore, uh, the idea becomes, you know, we, we fight wars on wars on poverty, wars on COVID wars on AIDS wars on drugs. Everything is a war. Every struggle is a war, right? Jaspers is really good at denoting that violent struggle is struggle that you do for survival. Uh, and you know, even if all, even if you're a vegan, you know, yanking a carrot out of the ground is not peaceful <laughs> or it's right. It's not nonviolent. I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, the carrot doesn't necessarily want to be yanked out of the ground. So it's, it's, so, you know, so, you know, anything we do in order to kind of survive has a sort of tinge of the violent to it. Uh, justifiable in the sense of feeding ourselves and or defending ourselves and things like that. But Jaspers wanted everyone to know that there's also loving struggle. And loving struggle is actually what he means by open communication. The only way that people like us can uh, encourage each other and support each other uh, is through a communication that uh, is that opens us up to each other in such a way that we'll keep struggling even as we uh, inevitably fail to communicate. 
is Jasper's, you know, I, to get from my authenticity to your authenticity or to get my authenticity across to you, we'll always shipwreck. It will always flounder. It has to fall flat, right? Uh, because the only way to get it across is through language and language itself is really kind of inauthentic. That's, that's why we can understand each other. So um, the notion of loving struggle is it becomes a, a, a faith commitment, philosophical faith that, uh, you know, if you are struggling for your self-actualization and I'm struggling for my self-actualization, we can struggle together as accomplices to, you know, hark back to a conversation you had earlier today with Deshaun Ray as accomplices. Now the existential accomplices, right? We're going to accomplish something together through the creation of this communication, through the, uh, through the making of this communication. And so we will become one commune. We will commune with each other and that's loving struggle. And it stays at the level of struggle for the simple reason there'll never be a 100% exchange right and and when you realize that and this is where you know if you queer struggle right so that you you break free of the idea that it it's it always has this violent component to it or that it's always a material component uh right and and you realize that actually it's it's merely it's the push and pull of all things moving around in a in a universe uh and and so when when you when you do that now you see the pattern that all things right this is the weirdness all things struggle uh and all things are in a, all entities are in a situation of, especially organic living entities are in a situation of struggling. But it's not survival of the fittest in that kind of Darwinian, Spencerian idea, right? It's, uh, it's thriving. Uh, it's the thriving of the beloved. Right. It's the thriving of care, not the struggle, not the survival of the fittest. It's the thriving of care. And um, so I think that's the, the the to me, that's what loving struggle is. That loving struggle is putting aside an obsession with becoming the fittest who can survive in order to become part of a part of a network that thrives, uh, uh, thrives through care of each other. So watching what's been going on these past two years, <clears throat> has that changed the way you think about the concept of the loving struggle? <clears throat> no. Um, I, oddly enough, uh, and I won't apologize for this, I have lost no faith in humanity. <laughs> I've lost no faith in life, and I've lost no faith in the world. I have an understanding that there are people who are so deluded by their dehumanization of others that they don't realize how much they've dehumanized themselves. Uh, and that makes me sad. It makes me angry at first when I see this shit. When I see Greg Abbott saying, you know, because my dissertation director 
uh, is and, and his wife are the parents of a young trans child. Uh, and this is very much affecting him and, and her and all of them. Uh, I have so many friends that are trans, uh, you know, not just trans children. And it makes me very angry. Then it, once I get past my anger, <clears throat> I try to, to realize that that I that the anger comes from disappointment uh, that people are so lost in fear, right? Um, bigotry. There's a really beautiful book if you never read it. It's called the uh, I think it's the Anatomy of Bigotry or the Anatomy of Prejudice. Now I, I can't remember the name of the author. I'll have to get it to you later. But the basic idea is is that bigotry doesn't arise from hatred which is what we always think or lots of people usually think is that bigotry arises from fear. And, and I always remember, as you know, I mean, since you've known me so long, you know, uh, after, after Jaspers and Plato and Socrates and Lao Tzu, Yoda's up there with my favorite philosophers. So Yoda, when he's talking to Anakin, he says, I sense much fear in you. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to much suffering. And um, and so I, I, there's always a point in when I'm teaching where I go over this because when I get angry and then I become disappointed because I know I got angry because I was disappointed in these people, uh, I'm not scared of them. But they're so scared. And I don't really understand where that fear comes from. I know, you know, one of the things I try to point out to kids is, is that there's two kinds of fear. There's a authentic fear or genuine fear. And then there's a false or anxious fear, which is actually more of an acronym. It's a false evidence appearing real. So any anybody in 12 step groups will have heard that before. False evidence appearing real, right? And that's actually, I think, always I've, I've come to understand that's really the kind of anxious fear that Yoda's talking to Anakin about. You have false evidence appearing real, and that's made you very angry. And that anger is beginning to turn into hate. And if you take Aristotle for at his word, hatred is love for the non-existence of something. It's not the opposite of love. It's a kind of perversion of love. So that false evidence appearing real that leads to an out of control anger that finds direction in the destruction of something that you want to see cease to exist. So I know I've gone on for a little bit, but I have not lost faith. I have not, I haven't had no change about the loving struggle, but the loving struggle requires people to come to each other without that, that, that anxious fear. If I, if I come to you with anxious fear, we'll never have an open communication. And that's been the biggest issue that I've found trying to communicate with people that are, you know, advocating for uh, banning trans therapies for kids and uh, that are advocating, you know, jailing parents for, you know, letting their kids express their uh, sexual orientation or their gender affirmation. Uh, you know, yeah. 
one more thing I wanted to get to in our time together. I'm talking to Keith Maggie Brown today on COVID calls. And um, so I, through this pandemic time, uh, you know, as you know, I have six brothers and sisters and uh, uh, one of them um, has staked out an anti-vaccine position. Mm. And uh and that that's the that's just the start of it. And um, oh, we had a series of very unfortunate text discussions, which then led to a short and painful phone call in the fall. I haven't talked about this much, but um, and uh, so you know, I'm 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 separated from him by great distance, and then also now we're separated by this this angry incident that happened and, and he's mm -hmm. on the side that that believes that the pandemic is mostly a creation of tony fauci and other experts including me he thinks um who are somehow getting rich on the pandemic and forcing people like him to do things they don't want to do like take a vaccine and um all right so that's stressful and yeah. but you know you hope relationships are long, life is long. You hope you get a chance right. to come back around with people. I'm in it with family and friends. I'm always in the long game, you know, and, and yeah, um, but there's real anger there and real hurt. And mm -hmm. I've talked to, you know, people I follow on social media. A lot of people have stories like this from this time. And, and, and so I, I wanted to talk with you a bit because it comes directly out of the, the loving struggle concept how to think about friendship under stress. I mean, we talk a lot about friendship, you know, fr when friendship is good, when life is good and friendship is good and easy and flows organically, it's great. But friendship under stress is hard because that's when you, sometimes you really find how valuable it was to you when you're denied it. And yeah. my brother and I, there's a lot of things my brother and I don't see eye to eye on. We're pretty different people, but I rely on him in certain ways that I maybe hadn't even quite fully realized until we became a little bit estranged in this time. So I'm, you know, I'm sorry to lay all that on you, but I think no, no, I, just, no, no, I, wanted, this... I want to yeah. talk about friendship a little bit in the, in these times of conflict. I just actually, uh, uh, did a talk, uh, not a talk, an online, uh, discussion with, uh, my, uh, friend Joy Harris, who's at the European graduate school doing dissertation work now. Uh, she she's down in Houston and they're doing a Hannah Arendt pop up about Arendt's correspondence and uh, correspondence and her uh, her notions of friendship. And so we had a really beautiful talk because we we're old friends. I've known her about five years less than I've known you. And, you know, it made me really think a lot about what a friend is. I mean, I think about this a lot anyway, because it's a part of my philosophizing but uh you know it, it just always kind of brought it back around i don't like feeling anger and what have you at people that i really care a lot about uh but then on the other hand um friendship do you know where the word friend comes from no i i keep you around so that i don't 
So friend, I do, I do other things. So you master the lexicon while I do other other things. <laughs> well, oddly enough, so you know, again, obviously, we never want to commit the etymological fallacy and act like you know a word has to mean what it meant when it was created. Uh, and in this regard, it definitely can't because a friend actually was was a Frank, like an actual German Germanic tribe, a Frankman who was with a an equal Frankman, right? Mm-hmm. And you got to kind of keep that in mind because the Frank man is the friend because the Frank man is the free. So friend, Frank and free all derive from the same word. And, and one of the things I like about the accident of that, again, I always like these as accidents. The accident of that is in English is I can say, that uh, without friendship, there is no freedom. Freedom literally means doomed to be friends. And what characterizes friendship is frankness. I cannot be frank with Joe Biden. I cannot be frank with Craig Abbott. I can be an asshole. I can be quite unforgiving, you know, and blunt. But frankness can only happen between friends. Uh, and it's there to um, sort of remind us uh, when we begin to get caught up in some of those knots that bind, get tangled up in those knots that bind, that uh, that we are drifting away from our own freedom, uh, right? So the frankness kind of calls us back to that. Sometimes it doesn't work, though. Yeah. And when that happens... This is hard, and I and I and I and I and I want you to to understand. This is not something I'm just saying as a throw off the cuff sort of thing. Uh, one thing I think that a lot of people are learning during the pandemic, and uh, because of QAnon and because of the res- insurrection and all the rest of that shit. One thing that people that never had to do this are learning, and I mean by this uh, cisgender straight people, uh, is that. Uh, you know, maybe the people who've been in your life that you relied on in a lot of ways, you just didn't really know as well as you did. And you may love them, but there's not much to like about them anymore. And your real friends and your real family are the people who can stay frank with you and who can support you. And uh, you want to stay open to changes, but you also don't need to like, just keep putting yourself through bullshit. It's, it's, you know, it's okay. It's not easy. Uh, but you have the right as a human being to care for your own self. And, um, and sometimes you realize that someone you love very profoundly has become something you don't like. And that that could be um, really just sort of breaking point. Right. Uh, Because now the only thing you can't be frank anymore with each other, you can only be blunt. And that's that's horrible. I don't like that. I don't like saying those kind of things. Uh, But I do understand it's the reason, you know, I'll invoke them again, not to be pretentious, like like saying like I am like them. But Jesus, Buddha and Socrates, three three big wigs, they all developed ways to figure out whether or not they could be frank with someone, I have to put it into my language, they, they, they could be frank with someone or they just had to be blunt. 
And sometimes the bluntness came as, I don't talk to you. Even Buddha would not talk to some people, right? I think that's, you know, in in our minds, it's like, oh, Buddha, the, the one awakened one, he's so open and so blah, blah, blah. But it's like he could talk to somebody and be like, this would be a waste of time and move about it, you know, and go on. Because mm. this can only end up in bluntness. This can only end up in an exchange of violence instead of an exchange of love. I just want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls at 7 p.m. Eastern time, although we're doing COVID calls pretty much around the clock these days as we move towards episode 500 March 16th. And you can read more of Keith Maggie Brown's work and listen to more of Keith's work at patreon.com slash call me Maggie. And you can check that out and I'll also put that up on Twitter. And, um, that's a very intermittent podcast, as you know, as someone who subscribes to it. <laughs> it's fine. It's good when it arrives and uh, people should check it out. And thanks for spending this time. I knew we were going to need two sessions. I'm glad I scheduled them back to back. And uh, stay healthy, my friend. Talk you to too. you soon. Love stay you. healthy, everybody. We'll see you I'll next time you on bit. COVID Calls. Love you too.